Hello, favorite podcasters. This is Stacy Freed from Rochester, New York. I grew up in Brooklyn and went to a day camp called Camp Nachas. This was about 50 years ago. And we sang the usual songs, you know, Hatikva, Zum Gali Gali. But we also played a game where we sat in a circle and passed a shoe around and sang a song. And if you're holding the shoe at the end of the song, you're out. So here's the song. A stray beau de jour and a honey kachata. Chita voy is eighty Keta, keta, vieraza, vieraza, ziggy, ziggy, za. Anyway, it's lodged itself in my brain all these years. I've never heard it anywhere else and wonder, is it Jewish? Does anyone else know it? Anyway, thanks for listening and thanks again for a great podcast. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by nobody else. This is the episode that we've been planning for a while here at the Unorthodox headquarters. And uh, Josh Cross, our producer, has been calling it the Marcusode because it's the week when everyone else gets a break. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm handling things. I'm manning the air chair as a DJ I used to know, used to call it. So, so good to be with you here. It's Thursday and, uh, well, I'm recording on uh, Sunday night, but it's Thursday by the time you hear this. And maybe you're sweeping away the last of the hummets from your, your closets. Your, you've got out the feather, you're burning things, or you're just pretending to. You are uh, cooking the matzo balls. You are uh, shredding the horseradish. And I'm here with an episode that I am super excited about. And not just because it has a lot of bee in it. Uh, it's kind of a grab bag of stuff that I've been working on for a while. And I think you're really going to love it too. But first off, a big thank you to listener Stacy Freed for that question that she gave us that we played at the top of the episode. I have never heard that song, but I bet some of you have. So if you know what that song is, if you can recognize the pidgin Yiddish or the Ladino in it or just the American nonsense talk, whatever that was that Stacy Freed heard at that summer camp, give us a call. Solve that one for us. 914-570-4869. And by the way, if you have some crazy song you remember from camp or just some, some sort of earworm from your childhood, Jewish or not, I think that would be a great thread to get going on our show. So leave it for us, 914-570-4869. Rest of the episode, we have so much good stuff. I am uh, going to play you the greatest hits of the uh, Jewish laws about pets. It's from a book that Stephanie Butnick gave me a couple years ago called Pets in Halakha. Yes, it's a, a compendium of Orthodox rabbis' rulings about how to live with pets. And it's pretty much the most awesome thing I've ever heard. That's coming up later in the show. Also, an update on the Jewish names bracket. And we'll be talking with Unorthodox's fellow, that's a fancy word for intern, Ellie Blyer, who will talk to us about his journey to Israel through the Israeli Defense Forces with a puppy and much more. And, um, you know, some mazel tov, some of the usual. But before we get to that, I want to lead off with my favorite Gentile of the Week interview of easily the past year. You know how Liel loves interviewing Father Jim Martin, the Jesuit priest? as do I, but I think my Gentile mojo, my bag of tricks when it comes to Gentile guests was was fully on display in my conversation with McKay Coppins. McKay Coppins is a former reporter for BuzzFeed. He's now with The Atlantic Magazine. He covers politics. He and I had sort of been corresponding for a while, but we finally made it happen with this conversation. He is probably the most prominent Mormon, or as the church is now asking its members to be called, Latter-day Saints. I would say he is the most successful, most read Latter-day 
Latter-day Saint journalist working in the secular media, and he covers politics. And I have a longstanding theory that Jews and Mormons are very, very similar. I mean, there's a lot that bears this out. You'll hear about it in the conversation. But to really have a conversation in which a Mormon and I dig deep on similarities, differences, and also in which, you know, I get to ask my questions of him, he gets to ask his questions of me. I thought it would be magic. And you know what? I think I was right. So here's my conversation from about a month ago with Atlantic Magazine correspondent McKay Coppins. Our Gentile of the Week is the unimprovably gentilically named McKay Coppins. They just don't let Jews walk around with names like that. He is a Mormon, or is there now branding themselves Latter-day Saints? He's a staff writer for The Atlantic. He used to be at BuzzFeed. His most recent article that came to our attention anyway was The Most American Religion. And it's about, you know, it's about the Mormons. So we're going to talk Mormons. We're going to talk Utah. We're going to talk wholesomeness. We're going to talk caffeine. McKay Coppins, thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. Thanks for having me. I'm honored. There are a lot of Gentiles and very few. See, to get a Jew of the week, there aren't that many Jews, but to make the cut as Gentile of the week is a big effing deal. The competition is staggering. There are literally billions of Gentiles to choose from. And here you are. So you're not from the promised land of Utah, right? You're from Massachusetts like me, aren't you? I am. Oh, I didn't realize you were from Massachusetts. I'm from the 413. I'm from Western Mass. Where are you from? Boston suburbs, a little town called Holliston. Pretty unremarkable childhood. Like my Mormonism was my only defining characteristic in an otherwise very bland upbringing. But uh, yeah, I went to school at a liberal middle-class high school and after I graduated high school, I, I did go to BYU in Utah. So here's my question about BYU. It's a big, sprawling school, and almost everyone who goes there is Mormon, except the football and basketball teams, right, <laughs> who are somewhat Mormon, but not everyone. on. The, so is it open admission if you're Mormon? If you have a temple recommend, do you just waltz in even if you're a C- student because they just got to have the Mormons? No, that's BYU-Idaho. I'm going to get <laughs> any Mormons who listen to this are going <laughs> to... I'm going to be so mad about that. But no, BYU in Provo is actually pretty hard to get into because while it's, you know, it's just Mormons, so many Mormons want to go there. So they actually have pretty high admission standards. BYU-Idaho is not quite open enrollment, but more or less. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, I strongly suspect, and now I'll get in trouble, that the same thing is sort of true for Yeshiva University for modern Orthodox Jews. I don't know that it's open admission, but there aren't that, I don't know. I'm I'm waltzing in, but we're not going to edit this. I do wonder if you're a modern Orthodox Jew and you have a high school transcript, are you getting turned down from YU? I don't know the answer. And if so, what's plan B? You're saying it's BYU-Idaho for you guys. Part of the reason is because the church funds these schools with tithing money. So, you know, Mormons pay tithes to the church and then the church uses that money in part. They do a lot of things with it, but in part to fund their education program. And so you hear a lot of people complaining, a lot of parents complaining when their kids can't get into BYU, that it's like, well, my tithing dollars paid for that university. (laughs) So BYU-Idaho is kind of the like, okay, well, if, you know, if if you graduated from (laughs) high school, we have this other campus in Rexburg. It's much colder and even more remote than Provo, Utah. I got to say, even going to Provo isn't such a classy option. Like if you don't get to spend four years in Provo, Utah, we've got Rexburg, Idaho for you. I'll have you know that Provo, Utah has excellent dining options now. I should say, by the way, I once gave a talk at BYU and it was great fun. Strong English department, 
really serious literary people. It was a great time, but it wasn't BYU-Idaho. That's that's the next <laughs> book tour. Now, what's your Ivy League school if you want to go north? Like if for Jews, it used to be Penn, you know, probably Yale or Harvard if you got, but Penn was a hard school to get into, but definitely a strong Jewish contingent, less so than it used to be, but it was Jew Penn. Is there an Ivy League school? Like, yeah, you know, if you want to meet them, if you don't want to be totally alienated, Go Dartmouth, man. The Ivy League school with the most Mormon connections and the biggest Mormon population is Harvard. The dean of the business school was Mormon for a while. He actually ended up going to run BYU-Idaho. Wait, he left Harvard Business School to go be president of BYU-Idaho? <laughs> when the church calls in a favor, that's, you oh know. Oh my, <laughs> that's faith. Yes. Like that's, you're not, you're not faking it at that point. <laughs> this is like when Ken Starr, the former prosecutor and politico, who had been dean of the law school at Pepperdine, which is on the bluffs in Malibu, which is the most beautiful campus in the yep. world, left that to become the president of Baylor University in Waco, Texas, <laughs> the worst place in the world. And I interviewed him in his office at Pepperdine, and he, I think he'd already said he was leaving for Waco. And I looked down, I was like, Ken, brother, what are you doing? <laughs> but it was the, it's the largest Christian university in the world, and he wanted to rep Baylor. Yeah, there's just like a weird Mormon pedigree at Harvard. I actually, in 2012, when Mitt Romney was running for president, I did a story where I went up to Cambridge and spent a bunch of time with the fairly large contingent of Harvard Business School students who were Mormon, uh, who were all kind of like mini Mitt Romneys, you know, like aspiring to <laughs> follow the Mitt Romney trajectory and kind of just talk to them about how they were seeing the race. It, it was it was kind of funny. Was it your piece or was it maybe a New Yorker profile of Mitt? I can't remember that talked about how, you know, whenever kids were like straying off, we would say in, in Judaism, off the derech, off the path, like young Mormon kids, maybe they were going to go secular, that he would invite them to his estate in Brookline or Arlington or wherever with his pool and his like virgin daiquiris being served. And he would basically, <laughs> they quoted some kid being like, the message was stick with us, stick with the church and its real estate holdings and its business school pedigree. And this too can be yours. Like don't get pulled <laughs> off the path by some Methodist boy or girl, like stick with us. And that it kind of held them close because it was it was such a luxe operation. I have not actually heard that, but it, this is something that happens in Mormonism where these kind of very established, prominent, wealthy businessmen who are very devout take young Mormon men under their wing, right? And maybe to a certain extent, young Mormon women, but more men, right? <laughs> and they'll kind of say, look, like I'm going to help set you up with the right internship or the right clerkship or whatever. You know, like any very tightly knit minority faith community, there's a lot of like, networking going on there. And uh, Mitt Romney was certainly part of that. So what happened to you? Like you ended up a journalist. Did nobody classy took you under their wing? <laughs> I'm a black sheep. I don't think there's a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of prominent Mormon journalists to take under my wing. Although I, I actually will say even I benefited from BYU had a very good because they realized early on that, the, you know, they needed a pipeline to get people who graduate with journalism degrees in BYU or in the middle of nowhere. And to get to a national media platform, they need to have some kind of pipeline out to New York. So they did have connections to like Newsweek and stuff like that. There's a secret Mormon media conspiracy? <laughs> it's, it's more like BYU professors go out to New York and beg people to take meetings with them and to take an intern. <laughs> okay, so name three other Mormon journalists. Jane Clayson was a uh, Good Morning America host. Now she 
does some NPR hosting. Yeah, she's NPR. Yeah, Mormon. Okay, okay. Who else? Anyone else? Jacob Rascone. He was actually an MSNBC correspondent during the 2016 campaign. There's a bunch of people at the Deseret News in right. Utah and the Salt Lake Tribune. Your conspiracy doesn't roll quite as deep as the Jews, is, <laughs> is what you're saying. We we model our, our long-term goals off of your people. You, you guys yeah. know how to do it. We have a, a three millennium head start, but it's the long game. How many, wait, how many Mormons are there in the world? Are there, I think there are now more of you than there are of us. Do you know how many Mormons there are in the world? I think the latest count was like 16 or 17 million. So you have, wow, that's really interesting because there are 12 or 13 million Jews and you are now ahead of us and you may in fact have more money. Like your real estate empires are boffo. It's much more centralized. The church is kind of like the Vatican in the sense that it's like, yeah, it has for-profit entities and non-profit entities and it owns, you know, cattle ranches and tons of farmland in Florida and, you know, all over the world. So it, because there's one institution at the center of all of it, it makes it different than a lot of other kind of religious groups. And you guys actually tithe. I mean, we're supposed to give, you know, a certain amount in, in Tadaka, but you're supposed to give 10%, right? Yep. 10% of your income. So you're making, you're at the Atlantic, you're probably making like what, 170 large not, or so? I'm not <laughs> Okay. So we figure you're making 170, 180, 10% pre-tax going to the church. That's that's a hefty sum. That's like, but I guess it's baked in. You're going to do that from the second you earn a paycheck. Literally from the time that I was like a teenager doing like part-time jobs, I was paying tithing. So you just assume, it, it, it doesn't feel like lost money. It's like just something that, that you do. That's the way the tax man gets you when you never see it. <laughs> when I was a 10-year-old in Springfield, Massachusetts, and I was delivering the Springfield Daily News as a paper boy and making about 20 bucks a week, Man, if someone had come for two of those hard-earned $20, if my dad had been like, give that to the temple that we don't belong to, I would have been so peeved. That would have been so costly. Yeah, but, but from a, the time you're a kid, you get this feeling like, oh, I'm I'm contributing to something bigger than myself. There's a, a feeling of community that comes from it. And that's kind of like a lot of aspects of Mormonism is about the the community and belonging and, you know, all that. Well, let's get to that because I've long been very interested. You know, Mormonism has so many things in common with Judaism from the idea of a certain kind of chosenness to the idea of a certain kind of holy land or special place to the special undergarments, which you have and we have, yep. to the emphasis on endogamy, on marrying into the group. Lots of things in common. We're trying to give you irony and sarcasm as well, but that's that's also a long-range project. <laughs> We're, we're working very hard. That That is probably a multi-generational project for us. That's a multi-generational thing. But one of the things that I've long thought is that as with Jews who have both religious Judaism and cultural Judaism and many other forms, that's an oversimplification, that there will come in time a cultural Mormonism for people who don't take the faith literally, but want to stay within the community. Mm. And I yeah. get enormous pushback on this. And they say, well, it would have to be so sub rosa because you could never admit to it. And I'm like, look, it's America. We have eventually we have everything. There have to be groups of Mormons in Manhattan or you know, far from Utah who want to hang with other Mormons, who get them culturally, who understand the in-jokes. They're into Napoleon Dynamite or whatever, <laughs> but they don't really believe in the whole, you know, seer stone stuff mm -hmm. and that the Book of Mormon, and they understand the Book of Mormon is not a great work of literature. So I'm curious, do you get pushback from Mormons on this? Like who's Mormons. pushing back? Okay, interesting. Mormons and non-Mormon scholars of Mormonism who say that misunderstand something so fundamental about Mormonism that you guys are actually foolproofed against that. That if you want to be in Mormonism, the amount of commitment, not only publicly professed, but also in your heart to the actual truthiness of it is very, very strong. And then you're never going to have a kind of cultural Mormonism or ironic Mormonism that venerates the culture, but with a kind of wink and nod to the theology. 
What do you think? What you're describing does exist already. The culture of Mormonism, it's just a very small niche, right? But but like you can find on the internet Twitter accounts or Instagram accounts dedicated to like Mormon kitsch or like the design aspects, the quirky design aspects of Mormon chapels and the, you know, weird songs that you learn when you're a kid that are more about celebrating the oddities of the culture without necessarily being related to the actual religion religious beliefs. And there are communities of people who will call themselves, I don't know if they'll call themselves culturally Mormon, but they'll say like, you know, I think the Salt Lake Tribune had a piece a couple years ago about cafeteria Mormonism, where people will take the parts of the faith that they like and then leave the parts that they don't. It's happening, but not on the kind of scale it it has in other churches, other religious groups. The question you're asking is, will it eventually get to that point, right? I don't know. I mean, basically, I think you could separate it into two categories. One is the truth claims of the church. Like, how seriously do you take the truth claims like, you know, Joseph Smith's revelations and the literal historicity of the Book of Mormon and things like that? And then separately, the the kind of practices like, can you be a good Mormon while still drinking coffee? Can you decide that you're occasionally going to have a glass of wine, but still feel like you're part of the community? And I think those are two different questions. And I don't know if I can speak authoritatively on it. What I would say is that one of the things that makes Mormonism vibrant and vital and work is the demanding nature of it. And whether that that's in the the truth claims or in the tithes or in the missionary work where at 19 years old, you're riding a bike up a hill in a shirt and tie, you know, like those aspects of the faith are what kind of holds it together. The idea of sacrifice for the common good, for the community is what makes it continue to work. And I think if you removed those aspects of it, I would be interested to see how long the church could last if we got to a place where a broad swath of Mormons kind of loosely identified with it, but didn't do any of the hard parts. I mean, that does answer 83% of what I'm asking, but it kind of you kind of misrepresented at the end. It's not about loosely identifying. It's about identifying wholeheartedly, hmm. but with a wink and a nod to the literal truth of the truth claims. Like it's saying, I love the practices. I love the community. I love the tithing. I love the sense of caretaking. I love the sense, like it is a profoundly true way to live. But do I literally think that Joseph Smith put the seer stone in the hat? No, come on. What has probably always been true in the church and is and is true now because I, you know, I know people like this. I think the reality is everybody is on different places in the spectrum of orthodoxy and like how many of the things they believe in. But the church has framed this as a journey toward eventual orthodoxy, right? And so like there is space within Mormonism to say, I don't know if I believe in the Book of Mormon. Right. Like, I don't know if I believe exactly what the orthodox claim is about prophets, Mormon prophets, but I'm open to a lot of different things. And I'm humble about what I don't know and what I do know. And like, I believe in in the way to live and I believe in the community. What you're describing is a faction of people who will say, I believe in the community, but not necessarily all the truth claims. Actually, you've helped me put a finer point out. What I'm saying is, and again, basically I'm saying is like, why don't you just be like Jews? Um, (laughs) What I'm saying is rather than treating the variation in orthodoxy as a bug that's to be worked out as everyone slowly marches up the hill towards perfect belief, 
could a particular group of them treat it as a feature, which is we're wrestling, we're questioning, we don't think we'll ever get there because there's too much to know and it's all occluded from us because we can never see the divine directly and all that. Like in some strains of Judaism, that's a feature, that sort of unknowing. Whereas in Mormonism, that's a problem with your faith that hopefully through enough prayer and learning, you will work through. Yes, although I would say that in parts of the country and probably parts of the world too, but I can only speak to my experience. I spent a lot of time in a a small congregation in Brooklyn where I would say that a lot of the members in that congregation would say, I don't know everything and I'm not sure where my testimony, that's the term Mormons use. I don't know where my testimony is on a lot of these things, but like, I'm at peace with my my place in the church and I love the church and the faith in general. So I, I would say that exists. It's just not as big as it might be. And I do think there would be some resistance, some institutional resistance to making too much space for that because I think, A, again, this is a hierarchical church, right? The leaders at the top care a lot about those truth claims and, and, and like believe that it is essential to the project. And, you know, they really believe in the the most orthodox truth claims. And so I, I think that there would be resistance to that institutionally. And it's just true that like a lot of people, well, it's actually, let me put it this way. The question is, and I'm really tempted by this because I've seen people feel like they have to make a choice, say, I just don't believe certain aspects of this, but I love the church. But because I don't believe certain aspects of this, I feel like I have to leave, right? Like, I feel like I need to now be an ex-Mormon. And I would love for there to be more space in Mormonism for people questioning and to spend their whole lives questioning. And that's okay. Like, I would rather them be part of the community and feel like they're liked and loved and supported and they can go to church and feel comfortable than to to feel like they have to leave. Uh, But I don't think we're there yet. And maybe it's just a matter of being a, a relatively young faith, right? Well, but I also take what you're saying about the risk of it, right? I mean, it seems to me it only works if it's a kind of permissible hypocrisy, right? Where you still, you keep mouthing the claims and you keep revering the same flawed leaders but you don't talk too much about it. And, and it, it's for people who are comfortable living in that zone without being overly troubled by it. But I will say that you've totally backed up my thesis, which is when it starts, it'll start at some little church in Brooklyn. It'll right. start <laughs> It'll start in Park Slope, as all heresies do, and then it'll slowly spread you know, away from the coast and toward the inland. Where are you in your faith? People have asked me that since this piece came out. They've asked, you know, it's funny. I think a lot of Mormons, wherever they are on the Orthodox spectrum, and and I'm kind of take some pride in this, project their own views onto me. Like they read the piece and were like, oh, you get it. Like you don't really believe in the truth claims, but or like you're you're an Orthodox believer through and through. But you also get that we need to reach out. You know, I'm on the relatively Orthodox end of the spectrum, though. It's hard because this is where we get into really like deep into the Mormon weeds where it's hard to like explain these things. And I had a bunch of stuff in my essay that just got cut because it was like completely inaccessible. to oh, That's the stuff but I would have loved. I think there are a lot of ways we could reinterpret or reexamine the way the church is set up and things that are more cultural tradition, but we've taken to be doctrine. Those lines are a lot blurrier than I think that a lot of Mormons think they are. So in that sense, I guess I'm less orthodox. But in terms of, you know, like I pray every day and I I actually believe somebody's listening. I don't think it's, you know, I don't just do it out of tradition. And I read the Book of Mormon. I read the Bible for guidance and comfort and consolation. But I also think that a lot of the assumptions underlying the way the church is currently set up are just assumptions and they're not necessarily things that can't be questioned. 
It's good to be reminded that Mormons are into the term testimony because when I talk to evangelicals, of course, they always want to fellowship with you. Yeah. You guys have testimony. <laughs> we talk a lot about that. Whatever we're fellow, we often fellowship on our podcast as a gesture of friendship to the evangelicals. But also, I'm going to start offering testimony, which is very, very LDS. So I once wrote a piece, one of my favorite pieces that I ever wrote was about the Mormon struggle in literary circles for why Mormons can't produce literature. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that piece, but oh, yeah. Mormons have had have had some success with, with genre literature, with sci-fi and fantasy and even romance, but there is no great Mormon American literary novelist who gets acclaimed as, you know, potential Pulitzer Prize winner in fiction or that sort of thing. Well, they leave, right? <laughs> There's like the, the Walter Kearns and whatnot are ex-Mormons, right? Like the people- Well, you know, just to remind you, I, I talked to a bunch of Mormons who said, well, because we discourage internal complexity and internal struggle and irony, we discourage interior life because we put the emphasis on the outward smile rather than the internal struggle. So we're training people out of that kind of psychologizing that allows for that kind of fiction. But so questions to you. Number one, was I being horribly reductionist and, and bigoted in the piece? And number two, you know, if there's truth to it, what's your explanation? I remember the piece. I don't remember the specific argument, but I, I would say that it is more complex than that. You know, there certainly is an element of Mormonism that's all about the politeness and the niceness and the outward smile. And I get into that in my piece too about the, and that comes from this deep yearning to be liked, right? For external validation, uh, which I think has served the faith well in some ways, but also has held it back in other ways. There are other kind of more structural barriers here, which are just like, first of all, a huge number of Mormons go to church universities. You spoke at one. If you're somebody, kind of a literary-minded person who might end up writing a, a great American novel, you probably would go to one of these elite universities on the East Coast. And from there, you're going to meet people who are in publishing or you have a friend who knows an agent who can help you or whatever. That's just that doesn't happen in Mormonism nearly at the same level. But I also think that the thing about literature and I even face this in journalism, right, writing the kind of stories that I do. The thing about literature is it's inherently comfortable and lives in the messiness and the the questioning, right? The uncertainty, like uncertainty is really crucial to literary fiction. And a lot of members of the church, it's not that they don't feel uncertainty. It's not that they don't grapple with complex questions. It's that they're not necessarily comfortable doing it in public for public consumption, right? Right. There's also, you know, another one of those small structural things is like, Mormons are taught to, especially from the time you're young, to not consume media that has like sex in it or, you know, too many bad words or whatever. And so a lot of people are uncomfortable with, you know, Latter-day Saints are uncomfortable with writing novels that have sex scenes, for example. And and that often kind of makes it harder for the work. It, the work gets genrefied or it gets reduced to like, oh, that's YA or whatever, you know. So I think that's happening too. But I, I think there's something to what you're saying. I just think that there are more reasons. This is a conversation though I have a lot with a, a friend of mine about people like Walter Curran, for example, who, I, who wrote a great piece in 2012 for the New Republic called Confessions of an Ex-Mormon, where he writes really affectionately about Mormon culture and Mormon life, while also saying that I'm not really part of it anymore. Is there a version of Mormonism that reserves a space for Walter Curran, you know, where he can stay in the church, he can stay in the faith and write his novels and write these essays and not feel 
uncomfortable showing up to church on Sunday and feel like, you know, his bishop is side-eyeing him or whatever, you know? I don't think this is the most important priority for the church to tackle. You know, they're like digging wells in India and stuff. They've got more important things. But I personally would like for the faith to make more space for people who would be inclined to write literary novels. Without getting the the famous Mormon bishop side-eye that you described. Exactly. Um, Exactly. It occurs to me there's one other thing going on that I didn't bring up in my piece. And again, maybe I'm just trafficking stereotypes here, but insofar as you guys fundamentally are modern Orthodox Jews, a lot of it is you're told to go into business, right? I mean, aren't you guys pushed into being accountants and consultants and ranchers and stuff in the way that observant Jews, because you're going to have six kids and how are you going to fund that? That, That's a huge, huge part of it. And this is why, you know, closer to home, one of the reasons I think there aren't as many Latter-day Saint journalists is like Mormons marry young. They want to have kids. They want to have families and stability is prized over a lot of things in Mormon family life, right? And so we tend to gravitate toward the accounting field, the dental (laughs) practice. You see a lot of Mormons who, actually, this is a real story that I've been meaning to write at some point. Go to Utah (laughs) and like, I think there are more dentists per capita in Utah than anywhere else in America. And the dental offices are so nice. Like they have like, you know, big screen TVs (laughs) and like every luxury you can imagine. (laughs) But but it is, it's stability is what a lot of young Mormon men starting out in their careers are looking for. This is so modern Orthodox, right? Like if you can't be a doctor, be a dentist. And the women are all in in Orthodoxy. A lot of the women are physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists, you know, good pink collar jobs, stable, good hourly rates. When I was at BYU, this speaks to it perfectly. Two of the most popular programs were accounting and nursing. I think BYU literally had that top-rated accounting program in the country. And then nursing was just all, you know, a lot of the the women who said, I want to be married and I want to have kids and I don't want a full-time job, but nursing is something I can do, you know, 15 hours a week. Those were two of the most popular programs. It's like Donald Trump once said, if I can't have little men with little yarmulke beanies on their heads counting my money, I want an accountant from BYU. I mean, wasn't that how he put it? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your article. I mean, I, we've we've touched on a lot of this, but, you know, as you recently wrote in The Atlantic, you know, this is the American religion. What did you mean by that? You know, I mean it in a lot of different ways. In some senses, like from the very beginning, the Mormon project was entangled in the American project, right? Like from the very, Joseph Smith in founding the religion taught that that America had been prepared as a place for Christ's true church to be restored. And in the kind of uh, Latter-day Saint folk doctrines. They're kind of interwoven with stories of the founding fathers and the American experiment. So in that sense, you know, theologically, it's very American. A lot of the like core Mormon ideals are also American ideals, or at least were at the time of the church's founding and up through kind of the middle of the 20th century. You know, patriotism, family, community, industriousness, like these are all like core tenets of Mormon community and Mormon culture. And they're in a lot of ways born out of Mormonism's desire to be accepted by the broader American mainstream, right? To be seen as a respectable, fully assimilated faith, because from the very beginning, even as Mormons were kind of achingly American, they were always distrusted, right? They were always seen as these weird radical zealots that secretly wanted to overthrow the government. So that experience and the experience of persecution and everything, it has led Mormons to kind of model themselves as ideal American citizens. And what I wrote in the piece is that 
the core irony now is that the thing that Mormons modeled themselves after is no longer the American ideal. And to a certain extent, the very idea of an American mainstream is an anachronism now. And so Mormons are trying to figure out where they fit in a country that's fracturing and, and is not sure what its mainstream even is anymore. Except in one sense that occurred to me while we were talking, which is the Mormon lack of cynicism and irony and snark and the niceness is actually the default mode for the youth these days. Like you can't do comedy anymore. You just like on the playground, my kids tell me you can't bully people anymore because yeah. that's that's insensitive and unkind. And so kids are actually nicer. They're not as funny or as interesting, <laughs> but they are really, 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 really nice. And I thought we're just we're producing lots of of. Mormon kids. They're hardworking and ambitious and nice. <laughs> a lot of little little Mormon Boy Scouts, right? It's interesting yeah. because one of the reasons I've had a hard time understanding the kind of culture war debates about trigger warnings and woke campus politics or whatever is that a lot of that stuff, a lot of the things that like modern, progressive, enlightened teenagers uh, find objectionable are also things that Mormon teenagers have always found objectionable, right? <laughs> like a lot of like the stuff that would get trigger warnings on a current liberal campus are things that would also get trigger warnings in like BYU. Mormons are obviously very conservative generally, but it almost goes so far to the left that it comes back around and kind of meets Mormons. <laughs> it's a kind of Puritanism in a way. I mean, yeah. the, there's a left Puritanism that meets culturally conservative Puritanism. So let's end there, or this is the penultimate thing I want to talk about. Journalism is having a really hard time right now. I mean, you look at the internal wars at places like the New York Times, just the meltdown, the inability of people in newsrooms to get along because newsrooms have become so politicized. I think it's safe to say, and I mean this as a compliment, you are more in touch with more people who are not part of the liberal newsroom consensus than a lot of liberal newsroom people are. A lot of liberal newsroom people don't know anyone who regularly prays or goes to church or synagogue or anything like that. Sure. And that's been my experience working in such newsrooms. How is it for you being in this culture that I think does have certain liberal presumptions that might not make as much sense to you and certainly wouldn't make a lot of sense to some very close relatives of yours? It's interesting. Like I write actually about this in the piece a little bit about being like, like a Mormon reporter, you know, and the different newsrooms are different. BuzzFeed was overwhelmingly young and very liberal. And I think it's fair to say there were very few people who went to church or even knew a lot of people who went to church on a weekly basis, though I'm sure that there were some and I knew some of them. But The Atlantic actually is a bit more religiously diverse. There are several colleagues I know of who, who are fairly devout. But I would say, yeah, in general, look, the media is a very secular place. And in some senses, it does help that I have very religious family members and friends and spend time in places like Utah and Idaho and Arizona, because I guess it might show a part of the country to me that a lot of newsrooms are unfamiliar with. But at the same time, like, I'm also a little bit reluctant to say that because there are vast parts of the country and American experience that I'm not familiar with. And I don't know that, like, being well acquainted with religion is necessarily more important than being well acquainted with, like, other aspects of the American experience that uh, the typical journalist isn't familiar with. But being a religious reporter, it definitely makes me weird. It's also the trappings of being a Mormon uh, person is uh, make me weird. Like I got married much younger than most of my colleagues. I had kids much younger than most of my colleagues. I've found that like, for the most part, secular liberals, especially the, this younger generation, are very open-minded. The fact that I'm religious and especially that I'm Mormon makes them interested in me, but also like, especially eager to kind of like, 
accommodate and, you know, make sure that I feel comfortable. It's not like the kind of thing where everybody's like snickering at me behind my back. Like that's like the right wing caricature of what it's like to be religious in a newsroom. No, it's a form of benevolent exoticism that they're happy to, that they're intrigued by and excited by, which sometimes, by the way, is the way I feel as someone who has more than two kids in secular America. (laughs) Whoa, whoa. Crazy town. How many kids do you have? I have three. Three? How could, How do you possibly? <laughs> I don't know. My grandfather was one of eight. Yeah, you exactly. know. All right. Well, we're going to set up the exchange between BYU and Yeshiva University and the accounting <laughs> programs, by the way. We're going to start the swap. You and I are going to, that's our app. We're going to, we're going to make we're gonna, a, a mint on that. An accounting program death star between Yeshiva and BYU. <laughs> that you'll, that, it'll be unbeatable. <laughs> Nobody would ever use another accountant. But before, before you go, I hope we forewarned you that the Gentile of the Week always has the prerogative of asking the Jew a question in this Jewish safe space. Is there anything you've ever wondered about Jews or Judaism? It's totally safe space. It doesn't matter how ridiculous it sounds, any stereotype you want to be disabused of, any question about our faith. (laughs) So I, a few years ago, invited an Orthodox Jewish friend. I said, oh, you should come over to our place for like lunch or dinner sometime. And she said, well, that's a little tricky because, you know, we're we're kosher. And I said, oh, yeah, that's a good point. And, and I very stupidly, and I acknowledged this is stupid. I said, oh, well, we'll just get some kosher recipes. And she said, eh, it's a little more complicated than that. Ah. So what do you do? Like, how could I entertain a kosher family at my house? Great question. So first of all, for someone who's strictly kosher, it's not just about not serving shellfish, not serving pork, not mixing meat and milk, right? In fact, none of your food will pass muster because your kitchen is not kosher and they don't know what utensils have been used to slice swine and so forth. So what you could do that for many, many kosher keeping friends would work is you could get disposable cutlery. You could put a transparent you know, piece of plastic over your tablecloth and then order out from a kosher restaurant. If you did all that, if you said, look, I'm going to use paper plates and or plastic that'll open right there, and we're going to put a plastic sheet over the tablecloth, and, and by the way, get plastic cups also, and then I'm going to buy some kosher wine and some you know, Coca-Cola. Every Orthodox Jew knows that Coca-Cola is kosher. We're going to have Coke, and we're going to have some kosher wine, and I'm going to order from and name a kosher restaurant. That should pass muster. Okay. There might be some people who are so observant, so strict, that they just simply won't eat in your house at all because of, you know, pork mites in the air or something. But that will probably do it, is you, you want to order out and serve on disposable plates. So there you go. This is very helpful. Thank you. Now, <laughs> there's still pitfalls, right? Because then dessert comes, you want to serve them some coffee. Now, coffee made in an urn that's only made coffee is kosher. But if you've served them meat, even kosher meat, don't offer them cream or dairy in the coffee, right? So that's- Well, here's the good news. Mormons don't drink coffee and oh, I know nothing about it, so- <laughs> Right, there you go. See? I won't even have to cross that that bridge. <laughs> Hence the the accounting death star of an exchange, a joint <laughs> MA in accounting between YU and BYU. They, they, there you go. McKay Cobbins, thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. It's been a distinct pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is great. Two years ago, my co-host and dear friend Stephanie Butnick went to the Sforum sale. It's Sforum as in Jewish books, hosted by Yeshiva University. And, you know, there was 50% off this and 40% off that. And the one that Stephanie got me was this book called Pets in Halacha, a comprehensive halachic guide for pet owners by Rabbi Chaim L. Belsky. And it had been sitting on my bookshelf for a couple years before I finally took it out and started reading. And I thought, I have to read this aloud for the J Crew because you know who will appreciate this? 
the J Crew. And so I got down in front of my microphone, and here's what I read. A reading of excerpts from Pets in Halakha, or Jewish Law, a comprehensive guide for pet owners, by Rabbi Chaim Belsky, the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshiva Seferis Yisrael in Jerusalem. One may not purchase a pet if they are not capable of feeding and caring for it. It is permitted to own all small, kosher, non-grazing animals. In modern times, it is permitted to own rabbits, monkeys, and other small, non-kosher animals as well. Most authorities permit owning a dog that does not bark or bite. So too, it is permitted to own a dog whose bark does not frighten people. It is certainly permissible for a blind person to own a seeing eye dog, for it is clear that these animals are highly trained and pose no threat. A widow may not own a dog. It is forbidden to own a lion, tiger, leopard, bear, wolf, or poisonous snake, regardless of whether they have ever attacked anyone or caused damage in the past. One may not own pigs for any purpose. Guinea pigs, despite their names, are rodents and are permitted. It is forbidden to eat before one's animals have been fed. But in a dangerous situation, the owner eats before his animal. Since it is permissible to derive benefit from most non-kosher foods, one may feed their pet food that is not kosher, with several exceptions. However, since pet food is generally not kosher, one should make sure to have separate utensils for processing and serving the animal food. There is a difference of opinion among the authorities if one may feed a stray animal foods that are forbidden in benefit. However, all agree that chametz on Pesach may not even be fed to a stray animal. It is permissible to feed an animal live insects and worms, even on Shabbos. Ideally, one should not feed animals food generally used for human consumption. When there is no alternative, however, it is permitted to feed one's pet human-grade food. While it is forbidden to feed a pet food containing chametz on Pesach, one may feed their pets foods containing kidneyos, legumes, on Pesach. One must clean their pet dishes for Pesach. However, one need not kosher the dishes, for the halakha is not concerned about the absorbed flavors within the dishes. One may not leave his pet with a non-Jew during Pesach if he knows that the pet will be fed chametz, even if the chametz belongs to the non-Jew. It is forbidden to cause pain to any living creature where there is no human benefit, and this prohibition even applies to an animal that is deemed trafe and is dying. One may not tie up a pet in a way that causes pain to the animal. It is forbidden to have one's animals engage in dogfighting, cockfighting, and other similar violent entertainment events. Pet birds, especially wild birds, can experience stress when kept in a cage for extended periods of time. It is therefore advisable to allow them out for a period of time each day if possible. One may not place a bird on the eggs of a different species. One may lead his animal to a grassy area on Shabbos and allow his animal to graze. Pets may be fed vitamins and dietary supplements on Shabbos. One may feed a stray dog on Shabbos. There is much discussion among the authorities if one has an animal in a different time zone, whether we consider it Shabbos based on the owner's location or the animal's location. Most contemporary authorities rule that we go based on the location of the animal. An animal may go out in a public domain wearing anything that is worn for its protection and comfort, just as a person may. This includes protection from the elements, other pain, cleanliness, and even something which is worn only to prevent its escape. A muzzle, however, is not permitted unless there is an air roof, for the muzzle is not being worn to protect the animal, rather to prevent it from causing damage to others. A pet may not go out into a public domain on Shabbos while wearing decorations. This includes a dog or cat going out with a collar or tags, costumes, and jewelry. So too, a house cat may not go out with any bell around its neck on Shabbos. 
An electric wireless dog fence and collar or an electric bark controller may not be used on Shabbos. One may, however, allow his dog to wear an electric flea collar, provided it was put on the dog before Shabbos and the dog remains in a private domain. A silent dog whistle may be used on Shabbos. In case of necessity, one may walk their dog or cat on Shabbos even with a leash. One may affix and remove the leash on Shabbos, though one must take care not to move or lean on the animal in any way while doing so. Since a donkey is always considered to be cold, a blanket or saddle may not be removed from a donkey on Shabbos, even if the animal appears to be hot. A fish that jumped out of its aquarium on Shabbos may be returned to the aquarium if it can be assumed that the fish will live if put back. Aquarium water may not be changed on Shabbos. One may not walk around on Shabbos with a parrot upon their shoulder or arm or on a stick. A wounded pet may be cared for on Shabbos. It is generally forbidden to milk an animal on Shabbos or Yontif. However, one may ask a non-Jew to milk an animal on Shabbos if the animal is suffering. In the event that a non-Jew cannot be found, a Jew may milk the animal directly onto the ground or into a bucket containing a substance that will render the milk undrinkable. One may add water to an aquarium on Yontif. It is forbidden to spay or neuter any animal that a person owns, whether kosher or non-kosher. One may, however, purchase an animal that has already been spayed or neutered, and this option is strongly recommended for those who wish to own an animal with these benefits. One may purchase an animal in partnership with a Gentile, even when it is clear that the Gentile will castrate the animal. Pigeon coops in a person's yard must be placed at a distance of at least 50 almost on all sides from the neighboring properties, so the birds do not cause damage or eat from other properties. If the majority of the residents in the surrounding area of the distance that the birds can fly are non-Jews, one need not distance his birds. Halakhically, all animal enclosures, barns, chicken coops, dog houses, and the like, as long as pigs aren't involved, require a mezuzah. The mezuzah should be placed on the doorway that the owner uses to access the enclosure and not on the entrance used by the animals. And for a cage to require a mezuzah, it must have minimally a lintel and a doorpost on the right side. A firstborn donkey, whether male or female, is holy as well and must be given to a kohen. It is forbidden to look at any animals while they are mating. And finally, a pet should ideally not sleep in the same room as a married couple. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. All right, friends, you've been checking in on our Facebook group. You've been tweeting at us. You've been emailing us. And it is time to update you on the Sweet 16 of the Jewish Name of the Year competition. We have fed all of your votes into a complex algorithm designed by Brent Musburger, Stefan Fatsis, and Liel Leibowitz. And what we have come up with is the Elite Eight of Jewish Names of the Year. In the Western bracket, it's man versus woman as Trudy Hope Shlomowitz advances and will face off against Ari Goldhammer. Hepzibah Maidenbaum moves on and she will take on Zissel Pessel, who defeated Moisha Oisher in what I think had to have been the toughest call in that first round. Moving to the Eastern bracket, Pesach Polanski is going to head on through. And my early favorite, I have to say, is his opponent in this round, Talia Wienerweiner. That's Wiener E-I, Weiner with just an I, Talia Wienerweiner. And in the last quarterfinal bracket, Muttel Dimschitz will face off against Hadassah Katzenellenbogen. So there you have it. Trudy Hope Schlamowitz, Ari Goldhammer, Hepzibah Maidenbaum, Zissel Pessel, Pesach Polanski, Talia Wienerweyer, Muttel Dimschitz, and Hadassah Katzenellenbogen. Keep your votes and thoughts coming. You can hit us up on Instagram, Twitter, the Facebook group, or just good old-fashioned email, unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Ellie Blyer is a college graduate, a philosophy student, a documentary filmmaker, and right now, through May, Unorthodox's Tablet Fellow. Such a pleasure to talk with Ellie Blyer. For the first time ever, Unorthodox has an intern. Well, not an intern, a fellow, which is like an intern, but with better hair and better grammar. The fellow is Ellie Blyer. He's one of our 10 tablet fellows joining us February through May. And, uh, you know, we thought that the J. Crew should have a chance to meet him. Ellie, how are you? I am doing okay. So you are how old? I'm 31. Where are you? I am in Tel Aviv right now. Okay. So tell us in under one minute your life story. Born in Chicago, moved to Israel at the age of 18, enlisted in the IDF as a lone soldier. A a lone soldier being a soldier in the Israeli Defense Forces who does not come from Israel, who travels from a foreign country and has no family in Israel. I was in Oketz, which is a canine combat unit, was released, went to New York, studied at Columbia, got out of Columbia, moved back to Israel, did a master's degree in philosophy in Israel, and finishing that up right now, and am a fellow at Tablet currently. What is the canine combat unit? You fight dogs, you fight with dogs, <laughs> you fight like dogs. The canine combat unit takes soldiers, attaches them to dogs, and then that pair will go out with other units for specialized tasks, whether it's 
bomb sniffing, whether it's attack dogs, which is pretty scary, or whether it like me and my dog Andra tracking dogs. So if someone would, let's say, break over the border, we could pick up their tracks and find them. Were you a dog person before you got into the IDF? I was a dog person before I got into the IDF. My parents' dog or my childhood dog, Woody, is still alive. He's 18 years old, living in Evanston, Illinois. I have two cats at home. So my life so my life has taken a bit of a turn. I love both cats and dogs. Did you select Andra? Was Andra selected for you? How, how do they pair a soldier with a dog? So you finish about eight months of training. And until that point, you have not touched a dog. You have not taken a dog on a walk, nothing. And your commanders know you by then and they pair you with a dog. I think because I had some language difficulties, I was a new immigrant. They put me with what was probably the best dog, the smartest dog, <laughs> the easiest to handle dog. Uh, which ended up being great because she was lovely and she we passed all our army exams easily. We went out to combat missions, the first of my team. So it was a good pairing. And where's Andra now? Andra's passed away. She's a, she's a German shepherd. Their lifespans, you know, 12 to 14 years. At the end of their service, soldiers in my unit often take their dogs home with them if they're of a certain age. And Andra was just a bit young to be taken home. So I convinced the head of the unit to let me stay on an extra two months. And he agreed to let me take Andra home. And so after I was released from the army, Andra and I flew back to Chicago where she lived the rest of her life. A few years after I got out of the army, she passed away. So sorry. Okay, where do you want to be career-wise, personally, geographically, 10 years from now? I can't plan a week in advance. Where do you want to be a week from now? (laughs) A week from now, I want to be on an assignment by tablets in the UAE interviewing Israelis who have escaped coronavirus regulations on their experience in the country that has just allowed Israelis. Okay, it's a strong pitch. You sent me some pitches. I haven't read them yet. I'm That's on okay. it. That's okay. Have you made Aliyah? Are you, are you Israeli now? I have made Aliyah, yes. What do you miss most about Chicago? I really miss snow. I love the winter. I know people try to escape Chicago winters. There's probably places in the States where I'd rather be in terms of nature, but just, I, I, I really miss the cold. Why did you make Alia? The question can get answered differently depending on which Ellie you talk to. If you're talking to like the 18 year old Ellie, who's super high on wanting to go and, you know, serve the Jewish people in, in the Jewish army, or if you're talking to Ellie four years removed, who's studying philosophy for the first time at Columbia University, or, or if you're talking to Ellie today, who's looking back on it. The simplest answer is that my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. They moved to Israel as Hungarian orphans, basically, immigrants, pre-1948, met in Israel and kind of instilled their love for Israel in us when we were growing up in Chicago. How does it feel to look like a younger version of me? (laughs) I feel like we look alike. Do you feel like we look alike? Uh, I'm a bit, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, I see it. We are super excited to have you with us. Thanks for being one of our Jews of the Week on Unorthodox. Thanks for having me. Friends, I hope you've enjoyed the Marcusode. I know that I've enjoyed producing the Marcusode, and it's uh, it's as good a time as any for me to just say how much I love doing this podcast. It has been a weird year. You know, it's been about a year since I last saw Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz in person. Um, sort of breaks my heart, and and that's true of Robert Scaramuccia, who joined the team mid-pandemic. It's true of Sarah Fredman Ader, Josh Cross, uh, everyone at Tablet, and our listeners who offer us rides and meals when we're in their hometown. I see them on Zoom, 
but we all miss each other. And as much as we love doing our Zoom events with all of you, we miss doing our live shows also. We are so excited to ramp back up and start high-fiving and handshaking and hugging and blowing kisses and signing books in person and doing live shows and just feeling the energy that is the community around this podcast, which is uh, coming up on its sixth birthday. When I think of the fact that the podcast began one child ago for me and one wedding ago for Stephanie and just in so many ways, uh, a lot of life changes ago for all of us. And when I think about all the people who have so generously listened and stayed in touch, not to mention donated, but, but donated more than just money, time, heart, suggestions, mail, gentle, loving, constructive criticism, all of it, it, it takes my breath away. In this Pesach season, I hope that you are freer than you were last year at this time in some way. I know that there are ways in which all of us are not as free as we'd like to be if we are in our houses still, if we have illnesses, if we've lost loved ones. And if so, I, I send my compassion and I, I wish you mazel in the coming year and I wish you good fortune in what is to, to come. And I hope that next year we will be in Jerusalem. And if that means for you literally, then I wish it will be so. And if it means for you spiritually or metaphorically, uh, then I wish that as well. The holiday of Passover is nothing else if not a holiday of hope and uh, a holiday that there can be deliverance, that there can be a journey out of whatever the bondage is that we suffer from. So do something kind for someone, perform an act of chesed. If you are able to include someone in your Seder or in your life who has nowhere to go or uh, no one else including them. And, uh, and thank you for being part of the extended family. And finally, before the credits come, I want to give just one Mazel Tov this week. It is to someone from a very special family in the J. Crew, Jen and Evan Stein. Their son, Joshua Stein, became a bar mitzvah this week. He did fabulously and surmounted many challenges to get there, as so many young sons and daughters and children of the commandment do. And uh, he's also a really badass ukulele player. There's been a great post about him on our Facebook group, and we are so proud of all the Stein family and especially uh, the bar mitzvah himself. Congratulations on joining the adult Jewish community, Joshua Stein. Wreck of the old 97 and G. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to Unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. Vote in the Jewish Name of the Year contest in one way or another. Just get in touch with us. Tell us which name you love the most. We will be coming to you live again. Let's start thinking about that. It is not too soon to start booking this. Email producer Josh Cross, that's Cross with a K, at jcross at tabletmag.com. Get some swag. Go to bit.ly slash unorthodox. I'm sure they're mugs, onesies, so much. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox. Unorthodox Podcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarf Rebinator. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem. Online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox name is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Howard Siegel of Temple Beth Shalom in Sarasota, Florida. We come to you once again from our scattered studios, which sooner than you think will be scattered no more. Shalom, friends.
animals. 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 